So my long-term goal is to be a policy advisor in developing regions and really helping decision makers dissect what's within their law or regulation that is not conducive towards entrepreneurial growth or small and medium enterprise growth because ultimately those are, those are the drivers of long-term sustained growth. Welcome to McDonough Talks. On this episode, I'll be joined by Joey Gonzalez. Joey is a dual degree SFS international relations and MBA student with a background working in U.S. defense and security. He served as a field artillery officer in the U.S. Army in Operation Inherent Resolve in Syria and in Operation Atlantic Resolve in the Baltics, supporting the fight against ISIS and deterrence in Eastern Europe. Joey has a passion to serve others, and at Georgetown, his focus is on private sector development and developing country economic policy to create better business and entrepreneurial opportunities in developing regions. Joey also serves as the vice president of Georgetown University's Anti-Poverty Society, and this past summer, he was named as 2021 Public Policy New Voices Fellow. So without further ado, let's welcome to our show our esteemed guest, Joey Gonzalez. Joey, welcome. How's it going? Hey, Mike. Thanks for the intro. Um, doing pretty well. I spent the weekend celebrating my roommate's birthday, so it's been, it's been nice to, uh, to celebrate someone and get back into baking. Honestly, it's one of my other passions. And Oh, really? I You're a baker? To, yeah. If my Instagram is basically just a bunch of baking videos and stuff. <laughs> what are your specialties? I prefer bread. What kind of bread? Like any bread in particular or sourdough? I tried my hand at sourdough, but it didn't go so well. Uh, just because of moving with the military a lot, the sourdough starter ended up dying a couple of times. And so I just gave up on it. <laughs> nice. Well, that's awesome. Thanks for being here. Your resume is quite impressive. I just wanted to start out the chat by kind of diving into a little bit on your background and where you're from and what was your family dynamic, just any formative experiences that kind of helped shape who you are today. I'm originally from Dallas, Texas. I come from a pretty typical Hispanic Latin background. Very supportive family, very hardworking family as well. You know, I spent the last year kind of reflecting on this in terms of, you know, who were the main drivers and influencers in my current uh, work ethic and kind of the characteristics that I hold. And, you know, part of it was because I was applying to McDonough as I was trying to get in to another school. And so I was going through this practice while I was at the School of Foreign Service in my first year thinking, you know, is this, what do I, what are the, the traits that I want to exhibit as a leader or as just a professional? What are those things that I want to tell people about on paper? And then what are the things that actually come out when I'm interacting with somebody? And service and hard work were two things that continuously popped up. And I started to kind of dissect it. Like, where do these come from? And it was largely from my background and my family, seeing my grandmother and my grandfather just make a huge drive for their 10 kids and put food on the table and support that large of a family, but also seeing how that rippled into my, to my mother's attitude and my father's attitude. And really the instilling of what it takes to, to be successful, what it takes for on a very personal level for accountability um, and for personal drive. And, and my upbringing was, it was not that awesome growing up. I remember the lights getting shut off multiple times, not having water every few months. But what I saw from my parents was just this constant pursuit of a life that was stable. And it was 
probably in the end of my elementary school years that we got that. And it was not easy for them. I've talked to them in my older years about it. And they said, yeah, it just took, it took a lot for us to figure out how to live life because they started their family as young teenagers. But certainly getting to where we are now and seeing where I am and what I'd like to do, it really does, I think, reflect the things that they've taught me implicitly through their own actions. Yeah. Wow. Were they born in the States or, or, or mm-hmm. are you a first generation? Okay. Yeah. My, so my grandmother was born in the States and then my parents as well. In Dallas or did they move or where, where about in Texas did your grandparents uh, grow up? Yeah. I, I think they've always been in Dallas. I, wow. Yeah. Those roots are pretty deep. Before that, your great grandparents are from Mexico, right? Yes. Mexico. Where were they from Mexico? Do you know any of their story trying to get to the States and coming here and being immigrants and what that was like for them? I I don't, unfortunately. Okay. I have been like really writing out questions, trying to capture my grandmother's story because I think, you know, raising 10 kids and doing what she's done to see the success of all of her children, I, I think it's something worth capturing. It's a post-graduation project uh, that I, I will certainly pin down and have that story. To, so I think the timing on this question is certainly appropriate. It, cool. it brings to light the or highlights the importance of really understanding that heritage, that background. I would definitely advise diving into that because my grandparents survived the Holocaust and diving into some of their background was like pretty eye opening and, and it's an interesting peek into like really where you come from. Learning about that history is powerful for sure. Yeah, sorry. I'm just I'm still reflecting on the statement you made just a second ago. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, I, I'd love to hear like the the story yeah. of the immigration. Definitely the most courageous, strong person I've ever met in my entire life to survive what she survived. And um, she's still surviving. She's got this unbelievable will to live. And even though her quality of life isn't the best right now, she's still hanging on, which is inspirational and sad at the same time. You know, so I'm curious to know if the, you know, kind of the back the story that I I mentioned a bit ago about how those how familial drivers have influenced my per like who I am today. Yeah, I'm curious to know after looking at the story and hearing it and thinking it through if you've seen anything similar in your life. Definitely, that perseverance and determination I think is part of my psyche that has to come from her and my grandfather, and then also my dad is like super workaholic. So like, there's like a yeah interesting combination of threads that weave together to kind of, I think, impact all of us from a family perspective, for sure. So yeah, thanks for sharing. And then so you come from a big family. How many brothers and sisters do you have? I have three, an older sister, a younger brother, and then a younger sister. Nice. So you're kind of in the middle. Do you come from a military family? Like what ultimately drove you to pursue the military? I do not come from a military family. I had an uncle that served in the army. And then the next person was my sister who joined the Marine Corps when I was in my like early years of high school. I was applying for schools and looking at different options. But one of the major issues I was running into was figuring out how to finance an education. And I had talked to my parents about it. And they said that 
I would need to largely rely on scholarships because at that specific moment in time, they were not going to be able to provide financially for me. And so I didn't think that that was necessarily a bad thing. So I had gone through the process of applying to different schools, applying for scholarships. And actually, so my, my best friend's mother, she was an educator at the time. She said to me that given my interest set and what I'm looking for, that I should look at the military academy. And it wasn't anything that I had thought about before. I knew in the early years of high school that my sister was already considering going into the Marine Corps. And so I wanted to know. It was something that was kind of like there. But it wasn't something that I had considered for myself because I was at the time I was really interested in Latin and pursuing the classics. And so that's like very strong liberal arts. And so I started this research into military academies just in general. So I looked at West Point. I looked at the Naval Academy. I looked at the Air Force Academy. And I thought it was really interesting. So I applied for the summer program at West Point and I attended it and it was like, it was like a summer camp and I really enjoyed it. It was like this nice illusion of what the army is because it was at the time it was like really fun and it was designed for high schoolers to experience like the fun aspects of the military. You know, there's no, there's no responsibility to manage like soldiers or equipment. It was just this idea of adventure and they really targeted that and I really enjoyed it. So I started to pursue it very, I guess, passionately. I told my parents, like, this is something I absolutely want to do. It's really fun. And it was like with other people that were service oriented. And I thought that was also really unique in terms of who I was interacting with. So I ended up applying. I I really wanted to go to the Air Force Academy, but I didn't get it because I have a slight color blindness. And if you like, you can't pass the physical qualifications to fly, then Mm -hmm. you get disqualified. So I got disqualified from them for like the, the color blindness. Uh, but got into the military academy and ended up going to West Point and really, really loving it. I've never been to the Air Force Academy, but I've been to West Point. It's like a unbelievably beautiful, idyllic place. It's it's amazing. It looks yeah. like everyone describes it as like Hogwarts, but <laughs> just walking around it, you see it's just it's castle esque. And yeah. I think what's the more enamoring aspect of it is that you know who has walked those hallways. And what history has come from it. And that was that was mind-blowing to me. Interesting, right. Because it's been there forever and all the great soldiers have crossed through there, right, for the most part? Yeah, since the early, early 1800s. Wow, yeah. What sort of formative experiences there at West Point can you point to that, you know, helped continue to cultivate this desire to serve and, you know, help others? So I come from a pretty Christian background and... The large portion of my time at West Point was spent within religious organizations. So Chi Alpha, which is an organization that's on Georgetown's campus as well. And interacting through that organization with other like religious organizations on campus was really interesting to me. With Chi Alpha, we would do a lot of volunteer opportunities in the community. And so it was it was service in this this perspective of we're serving the needs of the community nearby, but we're also, at a larger scale, we are going to, we're doing this training to provide defense service for the United States. And so it was kind of the combination of those two things. But I, I think to kind of tap into this dichotomy of who I was at the time is interesting, actually. So I joined the military well, went into the military academy 
under don't ask, don't tell. And so I think when I look at who I was and who I, I told myself that I was to become, it was largely influenced by don't ask, don't tell. I do identify as a gay man. And so I was actually called betrayer when I was leaving high school by a friend who he decided that he was not going to the Naval Academy because of don't ask, don't tell. He says that I got in, I'm not going to go though because of this. But it was something that I didn't really strongly affiliate myself with because of like this internal struggle with Christianity and with queer culture and identifying as a gay man. And so I chose the item that was going to let me achieve at least a, a personal desire um, of like serving the nation or uh, really a, an early career starter. And it was easy at the time because I I was able to push down identity and, and say, I'm going to be in the military and this is what I'm going to do. And everything is subordinate to that because this is service. This is above me. This is something that is at degrees above a personal need. And so it was easy for me to kind of just push that down. But I, looking back on it now, see how not having the ability to be authentic and to really explore who I am as an individual was formative in, I think, a negative way of delaying this activity of self-discovery, of identifying what are the drivers of who I am, why are my, my thought processes influenced the way that they are, things like that. Right. That's incredibly selfless. It, it's selfless, but it's also like sad that you had to make that sacrifice and you weren't able to live the authentic truth that you would hope to, you know, a couple of questions, like going through that decision process, like what did that look like for you? And then your friend that you alluded to, does he experience any regret for not doing it? Or are you guys still friends? Like, was there a falling out based on your decision to go and his decision to not no, I've actually lost touch with the guy, but not because of this specific instance. It was, I think, just because I was away from my hometown. Life, life and, goes on, yeah, right? Just, yeah, yeah. I mean, when you get when you get to West Point, the first the the first summer is just designed to break you down and to teach you the new <laughs> habits. It's the base of training, right? But right, um, Mike. I don't think there was a deliberate process of choosing in this regards. I think it was really delaying because of in my head I said to myself all right there's this part of me that is still kind of in its formative like state but I don't have the ability to really bring it forward and explore it because if I do I'm at risk of getting kicked out of this institution that I adore um, and that is going to give me an education that is quality and that is that is free free in terms of like the financial aspect but I you know going to the military afterwards is the repayment but I just saw the cost of exhibiting my authentic self as much higher than just pushing it to the side yeah. and pretending really that it was not there right does that make you mad at all like here's this institution that you love yet it doesn't promote or accept your lifestyle no I'm not mad at or upset with, or I don't have really any negative feelings toward the military academy or towards the army or towards the Department of Defense in general. That's a really evolved stance, I think, to take because that's tough. It is. I really put a lot of the blame on the administration who believed it was a good decision to do it because it is naive. Because it's not saying 
you can't join the military if you're queer. It just said you can, but you can't tell anybody about it. You have to be secretive about your lifestyle. But it, it really speaks to, I, I believe, where we are as a society now that we've come to having dialogues about authenticity. We're talking now about mental health a lot more. And now that we've started to explore these things, I, I certainly believe that we are much stronger because people are able to say, or they're setting boundaries for themselves. They're going to places that are conducive for being true and being around people who are like-minded. But yeah, I don't have any any level of hostility towards any institution because of that. Gotcha. Now, in your time in Syria, you worked with the Kurdish allies, right? I did. What was your feeling when um, basically Trump hung them out to dry? Like, How did you feel when that happened? And how has that affected your stance on leadership and decision making? So there's a couple of things to unpack in this question, but sure. I love it. My time in Syria, though short, was, yes, it was. Re- I was required to work pretty hand in hand with our like the Syrian Kurds, uh, particularly because my mission when I was there was to provide security for a logistics base. And then subsequently, it was to remove equipment and personnel from the base. So I had this balance of providing security for a multifunctional logistics base and reducing force capacity at the base. The only way I was able to achieve that was by augmenting my forces with the Kurds that we were working with. And so as American troops and equipment reduced, the number of Syrian Kurds that were on the installation increased. And so there's a certain level of trust and vetting that goes through this process. There's a, a certain level of training that's expected and all things that we ensured through, you know, we, we did trainings with them. We made sure that they were able to go and put like a patrols around the perimeter with us to kind of level and uh, make sure that we're on the same page. And that part was really interesting to see the drivers of, all right, we're here because we have to ensure that this material that's getting flown in is getting here safely and then subsequently that it's getting on the road going to continue this fight against ISIS. And it was temporary, you know, we're all, it's it's part of the war on terror. But on the other side of it, our Kurdish allies, they were fighting for statehood and their ability to live in a place that they considered their homes. And it was something that just stayed in the back of my mind as we got the order to exit. I had tea with my, he was the equivalent. I was a commander at the time. He was the equivalent uh, for his unit. And he says, after maybe half an hour of sitting there chatting, I've been watching the news and I wanted to know what happens to us when you guys leave. And it really put me in a bind on a very personal level of saying to him that there's going to be no U.S. protection in that area anymore. But to also say, this is going to be fine. There's not going to be any problems. The administration is working with Turkey and with Erdogan to ensure that this area is safe when we leave because the threat had shifted. But I didn't believe it. I, I didn't, none of, no part of me believed that that was actually the case because I knew the political atmosphere of the Trump administration and the mission And I believed that that administration would not do anything to actually stop Turkey from crossing the border, especially when you consider like what Turkey had done up to that point in identifying the Syrian Kurds as 
a terrorist organization, and then President Erdogan saying the extent of this terror threat for our state is so close to my border that we will use necessary force to move beyond our borders and exert power into another country. And so it didn't match up in my head in terms of what I was actually saying and what was actually going to like pan out. In those moments after leaving and just hanging out in Kuwait, because I ended up relinquishing command, finishing it out, and then was headed back to the States, I questioned whether my talents and what I cared about, that being service for people, because I always perceived the army as it's a people organization. Yes, it's this machine that's, you know, we said the army goes rolling along, but it's, it goes, it's just moving. And ultimately what the goal is, is to provide defense and protect the lifestyle of the American people. It's for no other purpose. And yet people that we had worked so closely with that were very critical in our successes in, in Syria, we easily walked away from and abandoned. And the news stories that I saw afterwards while I was in Kuwait, that the Turks had moved through the border into areas where I was. And then the ceasefire from the U.S., I thought, wow, we really messed this up. We abandoned an ally. I didn't think we were taking care of the people like we should be. And, you know, people will argue it's not the U.S.'s responsibility to take care of people that are not American citizens. But other people will also say, yes, we have a responsibility to people that we were allies with or people that are fragile or vulnerable. And I, I identify with that second group. And so, yeah, the thought process that is in my head, and i sorry, I didn't explore it a bit ago, is that idea of what we did in Syria and how my talents were being used was ultimately one of the major decisions in terms of why I decided to get out. I want to pursue things. I want to I pursue a career that is specifically focused on eliminating fragility and providing opportunities through economic means, through business means. Gotcha. Um, within developing regions. That makes sense. And then so you decide to get out. How did you go from exiting the military and coming to Georgetown? Like, was Georgetown always at the top of your mind because of men and women in service of other kind of ideal that is a major part of Georgetown? I was looking at international relations programs, found a lot of really, really nice ones. I eliminated all of the international ones almost immediately because I was just tired of being away from my partner. And so I found that Georgetown's the, the best in the world and certainly in a, fa a fabulous location in D.C. And so I looked at Georgetown, I looked at Columbia, I looked at Denver because Denver is really close to Dave, my partner. And um, then I looked at Johns Hopkins as well. But I ultimately decided that Georgetown was the place for me because of the the service orientation georgetown does a lot to promote that aspect of cura personalis and taking care of the individual and to me i'm like wow it's really people oriented i love that about this this institution but also i love how georgetown has so much going on in terms of trying to serve the community um, the community being the student body but also like the greater washington dc community with opportunities for education there was always something going on in the calendar of like, hey, let's go meet the Mexican ambassador, things like that. And so I thought that was really cool. It wasn't just education in a very formalized setting, but also education through experience. Nice. Yeah. How many years were you in the School of Foreign Service before you were like, oh, an MBA, 
the business side of things is of interest to me and I want to pursue that as well. Not even a full year. The first semester, I took a course called Business and Investment Negotiations with Theodore Moran, um, who just retired. And so I don't think that course is being offered anymore. But Business and Investment Negotiations explored how capital can be used to generate economic flows in developing regions. And so I took the class because I, I knew that international development was something that I wanted to explore. And the class really showed me that this is not just some interest that's like a whimsical interest, but rather something that is truly something that I want to learn about. And so I started to look at what are the things that someone who is influential in international development space, uh, what are the skills that that person needs? And to me, to be someone who is able to advise policy and see positive impacts on small and medium enterprises and business growth, you really do have to understand the way that policy and business actually play together. And then you have to understand how macroeconomic shifts affect businesses. And so I, I thought, you know, in order to better understand these things, I'd really like to go to the business school because I don't have any private sector experience. I just inherently do not understand how the private sector works, how the public-private partnerships work, where nonprofits fit in, where multilaterals come in. I applied in that first semester at the School of Foreign Service. So I did in my second semester, which was last year, I got accepted into the business school and then made the decision at that point that it was prudent to bring in the dual degree and come to McDonough. Great. And so at what stage are you in the MBA process as of now? So I finished the first year at the School of Foreign Service and I am now in my first year at McDonough. So I have one more year and that'll be a blend of the two. Okay. So it goes, you're the first like dual degree student I've ever had a conversation with. So I'm trying to understand it. So year one is fully dedicated to SFS. Year two is fully dedicated to MBA. And then year three is a combination of both. And you graduate with a degree in both areas. It's typically done in reverse though. Okay. Yeah. So normally the, a dual degree would go through the business school first and then go through the school of foreign service and then do the blend. And I think that is just by nature of the quant background that you would get that the SFS would duplicate. So we take international econ and we take an advanced economics course and statistics. And those are courses that the business school, just by nature of it being the business school has much more of a strength in. So yeah, I just wanted to transition into like career stuff with respect to the MBA. I know you did an internship with the U.S. Trade and Development Department. Um, I'm I'm actually with the U.S. Trade and Development Agency right now. So can you just talk a little bit about that? And does that fulfill your requirement as part of the MBA internship experience you have to have? And I don't know anything about the U.S. Trade and Development uh, space. So just talk a little bit Mm -hmm. about that and how you hope to leverage that experience into your full-time experience after school. In the second semester, as I was looking for internships that were, I really wanted to explore what are first the, the public instruments that can be used for enhancing international development. Who in the public sphere is driving capital towards developing regions, towards emerging economies. And in that exploration, I found the U.S. Trade and Development Agency and applied. So I got actually accepted in March of last year 
but I was trying to get it for the summer. Over the summertime, though, I was I had agreed to do the critical language scholarship with the U.S. Department of State in Mandarin Chinese. And when I did my interview, I, I told them this is something that's on the docket for the summertime. It's this many hours per week, and so this is what I would be able to give to USTDA. My recommendation, though, was if it doesn't work, then let's consider a fall option, and that's what we ended up going with. So USTDA is achieving my personal goal of understanding the instruments and tools that are available to the U.S. administration for increasing economic development. And it's its own independent agency. It's under the executive branch. And it's designed to connect U.S. firms with needs in developing regions. And that's largely in the realm of infrastructure. So it's really moving away from this low-cost idea and looking at life cycle. So what is the best interest for the consumer in the developing regions that will give them the best bang for your their buck, honestly? Because in the past, looking at procurement and infrastructure from the perspective of what is the cheapest does not always mean the, what is the most quality because of how rapidly things would whittle down. And so USTDA is trying to remedy that by looking at life cycle cost analyses and doing more robust feasibility study in terms of determining, is this the right need? Um, and is this going to last as long as it should so that the most benefits can be pushed into that, that developing country? Okay. I, what does that look like for you? If you could kind of project out. For sure. So my long-term goal is to be a policy advisor in developing regions and really helping decision makers dissect what's within their law or regulation that is not conducive towards entrepreneurial growth or small and medium enterprise growth, because ultimately those are, those are the drivers of long-term sustained growth. And even looking at that beyond, or looking beyond those two things and taking a peek at human capital drivers, but there are steps in the path to getting there. One of those that I would really like to do is to work at the Asian Development Bank or the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. AIIB would put me deeply into Mandarin. It's, it's in Beijing and the projects. They're very much like Chinese national interest projects, whereas the ADB based out of Manila would just put me more in contact with East Asia in general. And I think just by nature of one, understanding the language and the culture of China, it has sparked an interest in East Asia and Southeast Asia more broadly. And so I'm trying to really build skills about understanding the cultural nuances of working in East and Southeast Asia cool. um, so that those can eventually come into play in ADB. Any political aspirations? Uh, not, not at the moment. You want to advise, but you don't want to craft policy? Yeah, so it's, it's funny. I think at least in the medium range, what is going to be better is for me to understand like private sector. And so I do want to spend some time in the private sector. But I think ultimately, yes, in the long range, it'll be coming back into the government. It's just in what capacity? I'm not really sure. <laughs> I wanted to actually touch on the public policy new voices fellow. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Like, how did you find that opportunity? And what is the position? Public policy new voices is it's in its first year. So it's I'm in the inaugural class, but it is created 
by Globally, which is the organization that uh, that has been running young professionals in foreign policy for a number of years. And the deviation from YPFP that the New Voices has is that it's specifically designed for people that are in minority groups to get into public policy spaces. And so what we as the inaugural class have been doing is, one, they've been giving us opportunities with private sector. So we've had chats with Verizon, we've had chats with the Disney company, and really helping us understand how those companies think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, but also ways that we can be better advocates on behalf of our communities when we're in these spaces after our graduation. They also take a look at the public sector and uh, this mentorship and experiential learning aspect. So we'll have a conversation I think in about a month with the former Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice, and they really just want to give us an opportunity to ask a woman of color her experiences working in a public space and navigating that, especially since when she was Secretary of State there, the number of times a woman had been in that position was still quite low and still is. Yeah, in terms of responsibilities, we are largely helping shape the next cohort and what that looks like. And I think that's been really rewarding for us. Just taking a look at here's where we are, here's what we've done. And these are areas that we can improve so that public policy new voices is something that is really attractive, really doing its best for people of color in public policy spaces. It's very cool. It just is a year position and then it rotates mm-hmm. for the next cohort. Nice. Yeah, exactly. And then switching gears back to the MBA a little bit, are you going to be recruiting this fall for any position in the summertime for a summer internship? What does your recruiting landscape look like right now and then projecting oh, out sure. in the next year or so? Yes. So I am a member of the Consortium for Graduate Study and Management. The consortium, for short, it does a lot to push its members over the summertime. And so I've, I've already started the process of recruiting the companies that I've looked at specifically are, you know, very similar to USTDA in terms of infrastructure. So I've been looking at clean energy, specifically trying to figure out where is a role that I can start learning about the infrastructure aspects of these things and investing in those things and in, in, in infrastructure. But I've also taken a serious interest in project finance roles and looking at how private capital can be used for investing in infrastructure, in clean energy, in information, communication, technologies, and things like that. So I think just by nature of project finance, the recruiting process happens mostly in the spring. So the fall, I think, is mostly for me just going to be the preparation up until that. Uh, but I have also taken a huge interest in business for impact. Um, done a couple of interviews or coffee chats with people who have done the impact scholars. And that is something I'm also interested in is the impact investing and the the deviation from impact investing and project finance is just the orientation. Impact investing is broad. It's, it's looking at, you know, just ways to generally help society, whereas project finance is really largely oriented internationally. And I think that's really how, like where it takes on more of a weight in my mind, because it is outwardly oriented. Thanks for clarifying that because that was going to be a follow-up for me is is the distinction. I'm not familiar with either of those spaces, but it's a clear explanation on how they 
kind of differ. So thanks. Thanks mm-hmm. for doing that. I know I'm like an, I'm an infrastructure nerd. And <laughs> I think that's part of the reason why project finance is also much more alluring because it does specifically look at infrastructure projects and financing those. What do you think this country needs in terms of infrastructure wise? <laughs> Have you ever driven on the Autobahn in Germany? No. <laughs> um, we Yeah. Their roads are pristine. They're absolutely really? amazing. Yeah. I was actually in Annapolis yesterday in the enemy's camp, you know? And <laughs> so I was, as we were driving back, we were, we hit potholes. We hit these little bumps in the road. And I just think all the time, man, our roads in the United States are really awful. But that's, so that's just where, me. So that's where you would start. That's, ooh, I don't know if that's where I would start, but that's something I would bring up as a serious conversation. That's your pet peeve? It's just a pet peeve. I yeah. Yes, absolutely. I get that. Because, I mean, I think the list is endless here in this country. And hopefully they get their act together and pass that bill and start working. Because time is wasting. Time is money. And I think there's a lot of stuff that needs help here. Definitely. I, I was really bummed to see that on the infrastructure bill that were t- projects that were going to help communities of color largely fell off. So yeah. looking at like medical facilities, I think roads also fit into that. It was really it was really a bummer to see that. And then I guess just to round this out, at the beginning we talked about, you know, how your family and different family members really help shape kind of who you are. I just wanted to come back around to your passion of service to others. And just if you could touch on that a little more, dive into that a little deeper about where that really comes from for you. And specifically, like, I know Southeast Asia, Asia is an area of interest, but like, what do you really hope to do once you leave Georgetown with that kind of as your guiding light? Yeah, no, thanks for the question. I think, so we we would spend a lot of time as kids at our church. I grew up Catholic and then ended up going into like Protestant later on. But when we were younger at the Catholic church, we did a lot of volunteering and it was interesting to me to see you know, we have our own financial needs as a, as a family, but we would spend time serving others. And it was volunteering at an like an elderly home. And I think I've played a ridiculous amount of board games um, with, with the elderly. But then I uh, also, I worked with the, the school district for a couple of summers. And then even just at the church, working in like the kitchen and helping clean dishes or like serve food. And I think about have those things done anything for me. And I think it's just, it's this attitude of serving others and uh, whether it's a formal volunteer or whether it's just informal, uh, really doing the most that I can to improve the lives of other people. And so that comes back into the school by really wanting to take the education that I have and help the strategic decision-making that we have either in the the U.S. government or in a firm so that it is targeting the improvement of society, targeting the improvement of livelihoods of people. And so I don't know whether that'll come out as working in technology, uh, working on clean energy, or going very explicitly into an international development space through a development bank or a nonprofit. But ultimately what I must have in my future career is something that is that is not your your typical like blue blood approach at capital, but rather improving society 
as a whole and improving the livelihoods specifically of people in developing regions so that climate change as it influences like these these fragile areas is really minimized and ultimately it is it's about the person it's about people is what i'm doing truly applying the skills that i have in the betterment of these people's lives we need more folks like you to continue to lift everyone up and help this world become a better place as cliche as that is you know I often think about and reflect with my parents about where they came from. I mean, they, they had my sister when they were 17. We lived in an area where there was a huge population of young Latinos that would drop out of high school. And I, I, I often say, by statistics, I should not be where I am. It's just the background didn't make sense. My upbringing doesn't make sense. And I, it's I asked the question, I was like, how? How did I escape that? And I really do owe a lot to the attitude that my grandmother, grandfather, mother, and father have had on my personal uh, work ethic. They pushed me, they drove me to really see how far I can go. And I think that's even reflective in what I'm doing now, that this attitude of wanting to help other people is just it's just instilled from seeing them work hard and help other people despite the needs that they had on a very personal level. Yeah. Family's huge. Family's so important. I think you're right. If you're in precarious situations or environments as a kid, that's incredibly, incredibly fragile. And your parents, your grandparents, your familial unit are essential to helping anyone in that situation get through it and come out on the other side. So you got a good set of parents and, and grandparents, that's for sure, because they raised a good kid. And I just want to thank you for your service, not only to the rest of the world, but this country. Um, you're a badass, man. I could have never have done what you've done in your life. Mike, thanks. It, it's always nice to have the ability to share my perspective and really to use my voice. And I think ultimately, if you would have asked me to do this five or six years ago, I don't think I would have had the ability to do it just by nature of the path that I've had to take for finding my authentic self. It has been a journey after the Obama administration struck down Don't Ask, Don't Tell of identifying as a member of the LGBT community and pulling it from where I had hidden it for so many years and then bringing it forward. And I think even though it's just a portion of who I am, um, being able to reckon with it and identify who I am as an individual has ultimately given me the ability to speak eloquently about things that I care about and to even speak confidently about any particular subject in general. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm saying all that as not as a self-promotion, but really as just an acknowledgement of like how the process for each person is it's individual, but you, you have to, you have to trust the process and yeah. Yeah. Thank you again for the time yeah. today. Thank you for being on the show and sharing your story. Super incredible, super powerful. Yeah. Just want to thank you. Your courage is off the charts because the amount of shit that the LGBTQ community has to deal with and for you to be out and share your story, I think just takes a lot of courage. So thanks again. Thank you. We will catch you here next time on McDonough Talks. Thanks. See ya. Bye. Mm -hmm.